0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more Bankless. David, this was one of those mind-blowing episodes on Bankless. I think a canonical episode. Who did we have on? What did we talk about
1: today? Yeah, a panel of three MEV experts. We had Phil, Diane, Charlie Noyes, and Georgios Constantinopoulos, uh, who are really tackling, I think, probably the biggest problem in crypto head-on. Uh, and The problem of MEV, or Maximally Extractable Value, also known as Minor Extractable Value, Is the one single existential problem that could end this whole entire crypto experiment. It could just really either just completely just kneecap why we find uh, crypto so valuable, or also make the whole thing just not work at all. Um, And so those are some pretty dire, uh, you know, you know, characterizations of what the MEV problem is. And that's what these MEV experts really illustrate this problem as. And uh, the, the really the TLDR of what MEV is, is that Bitcoin, Ethereum, these are leaderless systems, but the way that they are leaderless systems is that they just allow people to take turns being the one single leader. And that leader is the person that proposes the block, right? At some point, while there's a bajillion Bitcoin miners and in future in Ethereum, there's a bajillion, uh, you know, staking validators, only one person at a time proposes a block. And so at that moment in time, that one person is or entity is separate from the rest of the network. And that one person has the power to order transactions that people have signed as they see fit, which gives them basically God mode over one single instance of time. And that really changes the incentives that the block pro proposer has in relation to the rest of the system. And this could be, um, it could be good in some circumstances. It also could be massively devastating. And what these MEV re- researchers are really trying to do is to try to figure out how do we harness this misaligned incentives opportunity and corral it back into alignment with the rest of the network and the rest of the values of this uh, e- ecosystem, which is decentralized uh, decentralized consensus. Um that's that's the TLDR of this, the whole entire episode, and it's really the big problem of crypto, guys. I I just want to emphasize once again what
0: David just said. This is the problem that could sink all of crypto. You know, D- David. So often, like we hear mainstream media talk about all of these things that uh, they they perceive as threats to crypto, and they're really like not threats mm-hmm. to crypto at all. Like China but, fud, China fud. You know, nation state regulatory FUD, tether, uh, it'll never work. It's too volatile. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things are such surface layer attacks. And if they were really looking for the problems of crypto that need to be solved, they would be talking about MEV. But Mm -hmm. mainstream's not knowledgeable enough to talk about it. Um, These people are. This is the panel that's on the front lines of not just researching it as a hypothetical, but actively trying to to solve MEV type problems. So I think this is going to be like a canonical episode. It's not going to answer all of the questions about MEV, but I see this, David, as like maybe the first in a in a series. Mm-hmm of Bankless episodes that we do, because we're gonna to have to talk about this often on Bankless. It's not a problem that's going to go away soon. It's a pernicious problem. We use this analogy of it's it's kind of like squeezing the balloon, right? Like mm-hmm. you squeeze it a little bit in one place and just bulges out in another place. So one, one minute we think we have it cornered and we really don't. The, the other interesting thing about this episode, David, is like um, all of the places that MEV actually exists in the traditional world that aren't visible, right? So like we talked about uh, the GameStop fiasco, G- GameStop and Robinhood and the hedge fund manager that that called Robinhood and essentially was a call to say, hey, reorder our transactions. Hey, censor some transactions for a period of time. So MEV exists as a problem outside of crypto. It's not a crypto specific problem, but in crypto networks, it's much more visible. And again, the gold standard here of what we're trying to build is a credibly neutral, open financial system for the world. It's never been done before. The existing financial system is not that, is none of those things. But we are holding ourselves to a higher standard in crypto. So we want to make sure that this problem gets solved. And I think we ended with like, you you asked the, the question of like, how optimistic are you guys about actually being able to solve this problem and the panel all had uh, really interesting answers to that question Hesitancy well.
1: at the very least.
0: Yeah, stay tuned to the end to mm-hmm. to listen like to how they uh answered that question. But like we talked about measurement of MEV, uh where it's most pernicious. Phil talked about his Flashbots project, mm-hmm. which is just like a really cool attempt to take on the MEV problem head on. We talked about this transformation to eth2 what it means when miners actually turn into validators and uh, maybe there are some incentive changes. Will it will it really make a material difference to MEV or not? The panel answers all of that. And we get into like some philosophy at the end, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I, di- I didn't know we were going there, but it's super cool. That de- definitely
1: fits the bankless theme. So fantastic episode, guys. You're going to love it. Yeah, the the topic of MEV is such a broad one that I really think the best way that you and I, Ryan, can really help out this problem is just by talking about it more. Uh, This is actually the first time that Charlie Noyes, uh, Phil, Diane, and and Georgios have all been on the same panel. So they were actually pretty hyped to all be in the same spot (laughs) to talk about it. And there's a number of other people that um, are definitely worth getting on to talk about this. Like Hazu comes to mind. I know Hazu pays a lot of attention uh, to to MEV. And uh, also Carl Florsch comes to mind. And you, you talked about how we ended up on conversation on philosophy. Uh, these three panelists are m- uh, very pragmatic and very concrete. But MEV, like, like you said, it's not just crypto. It's something much more existential. It goes into just the nature of the universe and how order of operations happens. As soon as you have just like bookkeeping or even grander, just like ordering problems, all of a sudden, like topics of who has the rights or power to determine the ordering of things? And that's a very existential question. Uh, and I know uh, that, um, you know, these panelists are very pragmatic and concrete. Carl Florsch, I know, can take the concept of MEV and like talk and connect it all the way to something as like crazy as like human consciousness. And so I want to get Carl Florchon, and also have the same exact MEV conversation uh, in that kind of context. And, and just like you said, there's so many things to talk about. And I think the best thing that we can do at Bankless is just host all of the conversations because the best thing that we can do to solve a problem is illuminate it. And I think that's what we are trying to do here on this podcast.
0: Absolutely, guys, you're going to love this podcast. Of course, David and I have some further thoughts for you in the debrief that is available for premium subscribers. So if you're a premium subscriber, you should have access to that pretty soon as well. With that, we're going to talk about the sponsors that made this episode possible.
1: Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants Program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum, and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you, all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Ave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com.
0: All right, Bankless Nation, we are super excited about this episode. We are going to dive into the topic of MEV, that is Minor Extractable Value, and we've assembled a dream team panel here. I want to introduce our guests who we are going to have this in-depth conversation with. Uh, the first is Phil Diane. He is a researcher and software engineer. Uh, with a passion for computer security and applied cryptography. You might remember Phil authored the original Flash Boys 2.0 project. He's now working in the dark forest on a project uh, called Flashbots. We also have Giorgio Constantopoulos, who is a research partner at Paradigm. Uh, Before that, he worked as an independent consultant. Georgios is a big brain. Follow this guy on Twitter. Lots of big alpha leak topics there. Deep in the protocol, we are also have Charlie Noyes, who is an investment partner at Paradigm, along with Georgios. He is a Bankless Podcast alumni. We've given Charlie's full bio in history in a previous Bankless episode, so I will not repeat it here. But you know, Charlie, he is also very informed on this topic and all things. Guys, we've assembled this dream team panel. We're going to talk about MEV. How's everyone doing today?
2: Pretty amazing. Excited to talk about MEV.
0: Very excited to talk about MEV. All right, guys. So we're here talking about MEV. And as part of the catalyst for this conversation, of course, MEV has been a topic that uh, has been a longstanding topic. um, Something very important in depth. But one of the catalysts for us having you guys on Bankless is we read this article from uh, Coindesk. It was called Why Ethereum's Minor Extractable Value Problem is Way Worse Than You Think way worse than you think. Of course, kind of a clickbait title a little bit. And yet, you know, there are some really interesting points that the author made. And I think points that the bankless nation gets to, has to wrap their head around. This topic is incredibly important. Maybe it's the most important unsolved problem in, in crypto or in Ethereum. Anyway, I'd like to get your take. And I want to start with that question. Uh, is... MEV way worse than we think. Why don't we start with you, Phil?
2: Yes, absolutely. That's kind of why I started working on MEV and why I talked about it at DevCon and why I've kind of anyone who knows me in the industry going back a few years knows this is like basically all I've been talking about. I think MEV is a very deep rabbit hole. It was kind of intended um, as a definition to unify all these different problems in the space. Things like what is software security? How do we secure smart contracts? How do we write secure code? Um, as well as things like, what does economic arbitrage and financial arbitrage uh, look like in this kind of new domain? So all these different kind of angles on the problem from software exploitation to arbitrage to system design to protocol design uh, can all be studied and unified under this one metric, this one measurable quantity called MEV. And it was kind of designed to unify all these very lofty goals. So kind of taken in its sum and its whole, the whole problem is, is super important. It kind of underlies everything we're building in the space and underlies the security and usability properties of every protocol. So no matter how you interact with the cryptocurrency it's important to understand MEV and understand how it can affect you, your protocols um, and kind of the systems that you're using or designing.
1: Charlie, when we did our podcast with you, which is one of the earliest bankless podcasts we ever did, you described uh, MEV as the one, the single one thing that could end the crypto experiment. Maybe you didn't use such, such crazy words, but it's, it's something of that nature. Why do you think MEV is such a crazy threat to Ethereum and crypto economics at large? Um,
3: well, I distinctly remember the first time that I learned about MEV. Uh, it was at MIT, uh, MIT's crypto economic conference, um, I think in 2018, um, and Phil was giving a talk, and I had heard, of, I had read the paper, um, but I had never before heard sort of Phil talk about MEV in in the broader sense, uh, and I remember sitting in the audience and like, like, like just like like a pit of doom formed in my stomach, and uh, and I was like, holy shit. The sky is falling. Uh, This is absolutely terrifying. Um, To answer your question, though, um, like with crypto economics, um, you know, in the past, a lot of uh, work has focused on like externally motivated attacks, like goldfinger attacks and other um, types of sort of like thought experiments that you can construct as to how. Um, you know, under certain conditions, um, like the crypto economic security assumptions of, of blockchains, uh, of blockchain systems can be violated. Um, so like a simple example would be like, um, you know, if a Bitcoin miner could access an infinitely liquid put option market on Bitcoins, then like hypothetically, you know, you just destabilize the chain and, and Bitcoin is worthless because it can't make progress and, you know, you make a lot of money. Um, and there are actually an infinite number of these such thought experiments. Like, um, and uh, and and sort of for a long time, like there are many, I, I think there are a lot of named ones um uh as well. And and people kind of spent time um, coming up with different scenarios, like depending on you know financial derivative positions that like miners could take, um, network splits, whatever, all the stuff. Um Uh, But all of them were essentially externally motivated, and I think the reason that nobody uh, was super concerned about them is because there's no obvious reason that they get worse uh, over time or with scale. So, like, there's no obvious reason why today, I, if I wanted to go, if I was a Bitcoin miner, like, could not practically uh, take a large enough short position for it to be, like, profitable for me to destabilize the network. And there's no obvious reason why, if Bitcoin is twice as large as it currently is, that that will change, right? um now the thing about mev that has always scared me uh and when i heard phil's talk that terrified me uh is this idea that it's internal to the system um that it's unbounded it's internal to the system and um like in the ethereum context um i think you could expect that it will grow over time um and perhaps even that the growth rate that the growth rate um you know will outstrip um the growth rate of rewards which is fixed and constant um and i think we have seen that happening like that trend is um uh sort of seen in practice so uh we've joked that you know mev if it is uh like the worst case would be like a crypto economic cancer it just takes over the system
4: to take the contrarian view on this thank you charlie i think that MeV can be seen as a bad thing with all the usual consensus of destabilization, destabilization um, kind of description. However, I think that MeV can also be thought of as a security budget source. For example, if uh, you have a blockchain that does not have a block reward, you could fund the security of the system not on transaction fees paid via the usual gas price auctions, but via MeV. So I think that it's important that we kind of distinguish that there's also this kind of angle to the problem.
0: So, before we get too far into this podcast, I think uh, what we want to do is define what MV- MEV is and l- let's try the simplest possible explanation of MEV, knowing that there's some people listening to this, this is their first exposure to the topic and we're even throwing out an acronym like MEV and they're like what? So, Phil, what is the simplest possible explanation of MEV?
2: Maybe I'll give two definitions. I'll give you the historical definition of where MEV came from, and then the kind of more modern take, uh, the, the respin of the definition. So historically, MEV, uh, it stands for Miner Extractable Value. It's the amount of value in cryptocurrencies that miners, uh, especially in proof-of-work cryptocurrencies, are able to extract, aka increase their own balance or send to themselves by taking actions in the system. So miners have a lot of power in cryptocurrency systems. They are responsible for things like choosing what order transactions were included in, uh, in a block, in Bitcoin or Ethereum or other such networks. They're responsible for choosing which transaction gets included or not in a block. Um, And their job is to kind of listen on the network and to choose and assemble um, and, and act in the system kind of based on what they see in the world. Um, That being said, they have some power given that they have all these choices of like which order do I include? Do I include Phil's transaction and not Georgios' transaction? Do I include Georgios' transaction before Charlie's transaction? These are all choices, these are all freedoms the miners have in the system. Um, And all these freedoms taken together give them power to influence outcomes and that power is valuable. So the value that they can extract by doing things like reordering transactions or inserting their own transactions with themselves Um, kind of in the transaction, or censoring other people's transactions, uh, causing other people's transactions to fail, kind of any combination of all these things that miners can do, the amount that they can increase their own profit, that's called the MEV, and it's a number. Uh, Basically, the idea behind MEV is that by, by quantifying this, by measuring this number precisely, which is a very hard problem to do, You can measure the security of blockchain systems and also how different contracts and different systems interact and compose together um, and affect each other's security properties and affect each other's UXs um, and all these kind of complex questions that you can't ask without the lens of MEV. You can also look at, and this is why the MEV was originally defined, the effect on the consensus game. So how does this change and corrupt incentives of miners to actually secure the blockchain, which is what we're trying to pay them to do. Um, So this extra incentive to do things like manipulate the system for profit actually corrupts the minor incentive to participate honestly and to contribute to the security of the system uh, by sometimes causing them to be incentivized to do things like ignore each other's blocks uh, or compete with each other when otherwise they wouldn't um, and other such games. Um, So in that way MEV was also designed to quantify the effect on all blockchain users. So even if you're not using a system that has MEV, you're using the same blockchain, the MEV will affect you and the security your blockchain is getting from its miners. Um, Just real quick to update the definition, so a lot of people ask natural questions like what about proof of stake, what about layer 2? So we've kind of rebranded MEV to to now be maximal or maximum extractable value. Um, I think maximum is actually the canonical. Um, And what that is is it's basically the maximum value that any permissionless actor in the system can extract. So for a proof of work chains, because the miners are the most powerful permissionless actor, and because any attack that any bot or actor on the network can do can be more efficiently done by the miners, all maximal extractable value is minor extractable value. Uh, They're the same definition. Even if the miners choose not to extract it, it's still MEV, because it's able to be extracted by the miner. That's what the definition says. Now in proof of work systems in L2s, you have different actors in different permissioned positions and different privileged positions. uh, And their MEV kind of looks like the maximum value that's able to be extracted um, by by kind of uh, these actors or any meaningful kind of collusive subset of these actors. So that was a really long explanation, but hopefully it brings some color to what MEV is.
0: It's great, Phil. And, and look, keep us honest during this episode if we say minor extractable value, maximum extractable value is uh, the better, more canonical definition, more expansive and accurate definition, I think. Uh, one quick question but before we introduce some of the other panelists into the definition of this thing and maybe give a recap of it. Does MEV, y- you've you phrase it in, in terms of the, the blockchain world, right? But is the category of MEV type problems, transaction, reordering type problems, censorship, uh, some third party having the ability to, uh, with that power, is that exclusive to the blockchain world or do we see traditional analogs and what are those?
2: Not at all. I think there's a spectrum. So I think the nice thing about blockchains is it's very Cartesian, very deterministic, like you can measure a number. There's not risk, there's not uncertainty, because within the blockchain world, everything is kind of deterministic and programmatic. Uh, So in that way, there's some unique characteristics of specifically Ethereum MEV. That being said, it does generalize to all kinds of other different uh, settings. Uh, So here are a few examples. One of them is a permissioned blockchain. You can have a fully permissioned blockchain where MEV is still meaningful to reason about. So one of the early myths in kind of permissioned blockchain worlds is like we're going to spin up this blockchain between like Chase, you know, like Barclays and whatever other five bank consortiums and they're all going to validate and we're going to do this round robin protocol and that's going to disintermediate trust between these entities. Uh, And in some ways the presence of MEV on that chain like speaks to like a break in that abstraction barrier where like just because you've sharded your validation doesn't mean you've reduced these problems are taken them away. Um, so in that setting, it's absolutely still meaningful. Um, it's also meaningful in kind of the the mixed decentralized centralized setting. So some MEV, more similar to slow market arbitrage in traditional markets, might exist because of. Uh, You know, uh, differences on centralized exchanges like Coinbase and Binance that are commonly market leaders uh, and and DEXs that are trading kind of within the blockchain abstraction and don't have efficient channels for price propagation other than this MEV fueled arbitrage. Uh, So that might be kind of a more probabilistic and more hybrid kind of style of MEV. Um, And if you kind of take that to its most probabilistic and like most amorphous kind of form, you can also view traditional financial systems that way and like quantify for various actors, what is their benefit for being in their position? And I think like had the world been looking at the financial system through a more MEV lens, things like the Robin Hood drama that happened with GameStop, it would have been a lot more obvious. That was MEV. yeah, it was MEV. And like it's something we've been saying at Cornell and like to people I've been talking about in the space even long before that happened, that like, look at how these people make their money. Uh, it's, but why
0: and- was that MEV? It was because hedge fund managers didn't like what was going on in the market and made a phone call to Robinhood to reorder things.
2: Yeah, Robinhood was the M, basically, right? They controlled the infrastructure of like whose trades get processed and things like that. And they did several things. A, they were reordering and inserting their own transactions. It wasn't their own; it was Citadel's, right? And like sandwiching people, basically, which is exactly what we see on flashbots and on like Ethereum today. Um, so they were doing that like actively the entire time. And that wasn't bad. That was just their business model, and that was like all open and public. Um, and then yes, they engaged in some more active censorship attacks when kind of the Black Swan happened of GameStop and of hedge funds losing money. Uh, and that also speaks to how MEV will play out, I think, in, in, in permissionless systems. Uh, when you see these system shocks, when you see these black swans, uh, these systems of trust that we've built are very fragile um, and, and they fail users at those moments, at those really key moments when they need to be working. Um, and that's where a lot of the work in Flashbots is going, how to kind of shore that up and how to think about that and prepare
4: for that, that future as uh, maybe matt levine would say everything is minor extractable value in this system um something on this i think that mev is kind of um, as phil's blogs have written in the past it's fundamental to having a permissionless system if you don't have mev and you have many users trying to touch kind of the same piece of state whether that's a trade or a liquidation or anything else but if there is this kind of race condition where many people are trying to touch the same thing which has value If your system is permissionless, it will have MEV. If not, well, your system has permissions and actors and well, the hierarchy is not uh, as flat as you'd want.
3: Yeah, I guess just to, I think we're gonna get into this with the transaction fee section later, but um, I think that there is an argument that like in the permissionless context, um, uh, like transaction fees as a necessary DOS uh, prevention vector uh, like are the original sin of MEV. Um, and unavoidable in the sense that um, if you don't if you don't give folks um, the ability to express preference on transaction inclusion, that's a DOS factor. Um, if you do give them uh, the ability to express that preference, that's MEV. Um, I mean,
4: not even a DOS vector, right? If you want to design a quote unquote fair system or equity or you know egalitarian or whatever you want to call it, ideally you want people to be able to bid and express their preferences, right? yeah I would argue it's a necessary quality, yeah,
0: right. and by the way, guys for for those listening in dos, you guys mean denial of service attacks, which is yeah, essentially without transaction fees
3: right. without the ability to express preference, then you can't differentiate spam from normal transactions and and there's like a fixed cost of spam, although you can't outbid the yeah you know, mm-hmm. so.
1: So I, I want to back up, and uh, Phil gave a, a nice illustration of of MEV, and I, I want to do the same, but, but with different words. Uh, the, the way I've heard this is that, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto economics, these are supposed to be leaderless systems, right? They're supposed to be decentralized, and what that means is that Uh, Instead of having one leader that bestows the right to order transactions upon either themselves or they pick out their party, Ethereum and Bitcoin, it's kind of ideally chosen by randomness, right? Like random hashes, uh, the beacon chain randomness for proof of stake. And so while these are leaderless systems in the macro, in the micro, whoever proposes the next block has literal God mode over that one specific instance, right? God mode over that one block. And the way that Ethereum and Bitcoin achieve fairness is they just shuffle around who gets God mode, right? And like, oh, you get God mode, now you get God mode. But the difference is when you have been uh, bestowed the position of God mode, you all of a sudden have very different incentives than the rest of the system. And depending on the characteristic and nature of the MEV, the MEV could actually keep your incentives generally kind of aligned or different types of MEV and different kinds of strategies could actually make you very misaligned with the rest of the ecosystem. So Georgios, so I, want, I want to turn to you. Can Maybe you can shine some more light and, and get uh, some more clarity on MEV for us. What would you ascribe to be like perhaps good MEV that actually adds to the alignment between the the transaction order and what would you also call bad mev where where the transaction order is fundamentally misaligned with the rest of the participants
4: in the system yeah of course so a good mev um extraction opportunity would be an arbitrage because when there's two markets ideally of the trading the same asset ideally would want these two markets to be trading more or less at the same price so what arbitrageurs do um, which exposes MEV is that they try to make a trade on one place and trade on another place in an effort to make spreads tighter. And generally in markets, we like, uh, we like it when spreads are tighter. So that's one case of good MEV. Another case of good MEV would be that, let's say that David has a loan on MakerDAO or on Aave, and suddenly Ether price starts to move against his loan and uh, he's about to be liquidated. A good MEV example here could be a miner or a liquidator, whoever, um, saving your loan from getting liquidated and saving you from the penalty, that the liquidation penalty that you would get. So there's ways basically to use MEV kind of to our benefit on that end. On the opposite side of the spectrum, a bad MEV would be somebody censoring a liquidation transaction, so, or rather a debt repayment transaction, such that your system gets, uh, your loan gets liquidated. Many people in the Black Thursday um, days they called that MakerDAO um, when the MakerDAO loans all got liquidated at zero. Many people were calling that there was miner censorship, for example, around this. This was not. This was most definitely not true. Um, but you know um, that would be one example where basically miners start to censor transactions like crazy. Another example would be that let's say that you are on a layer two system that uses fraud proofs, um, and the miner just decides to censor a transaction forever. You could say that all the funds um, in the system could be under MEV because the miner, in a way, would have control of them. And and Georgios, how
1: would you uh, also reclassify different kinds of MEV as it relates to uh, security for the overarching system, right? Some MEV actually adds to security. Some MEV detracts from security. How do you draw these lines?
4: This is a hard thing. And I think that if you ask three different people, you would get a different uh, answer. Probably the ways that MEV contributes to the security of the system is, um, as I said earlier, around how do you align the incentives of the miners to keep extending the longest chain. Um, Whereas a case for where MEV can be seen as bad for the security of the system would be when the miners um, are trying to, they see an MEV opportunity five blocks in the past and they would execute the infamous time bandit attack where they would go in the past and they would rewrite the history so that they grab this past MEV opportunity. So I think it's a bit hard for us to kind of say this kind of MEV would be um, good for security and bad for security, because it kind of depends on how the consensus participant, the block producer decides to utilize it.
1: Phil, Giorgio said, if you get three different people, you get three different answers. Do you have a, a different answer?
4: Yeah,
2: um, I think Giorgio's hit some great points. I think there's a, a little bit I would add of like one extra dimension that I think is relevant here, which is like just the regularity. So if you have like constant MEV that's like available every block, for example, transaction fees, approximately the same amount every block, block rewards being the most regular, um, I think that's very different to analyze from a security game standpoint, just because it's much more predictable. Whereas if you have something like Black Friday, Black Thursday style MEV, where it's like, you know, blocks that just have millions and millions and millions of dollars in MEV in like a very, very short time period because of how quickly things are happening in the real world. Uh, That introduces much more variance to like all of your security uh, calculations much more unpredictability. And in that way, it kind of just like erodes your conclusions whether or not the outcomes are expressed. Um, I think in general, this is very much an open research question. So like no one has a, a definite answer of, what MEV is good or bad for security. I think what's clear is that it affects the game. And like it's clear that some types affect the game more or less or in, in different ways, but it's not clear what to do about it or 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 if it's fundamentally good or bad in like a, a stability sense in the long term yet.
3: I think that MEV shares an interesting property um, with. A long time ago, uh, Goon uh, had written a post called Ethereum is inherently secure against censorship, which essentially makes the argument that um, uh, because smart contracts can do anything, uh, you can't constrain any specific type of behavior uh, on Ethereum, i.e. You know, if we want to implement Uniswap, there there are literally, theoretically, infinite number of ways to do that. And so there's no way at the level of the protocol to preclude that kind of behavior um like the same is true in the case of mev um and different behaviors that generate it so i think that like there are certain um there are certain base cases like phil referred to uh like transaction fees that are baked into the protocol and like are able to be reasoned about in a general way in a general way um but uh like sort of as you start getting into the application layer um, it becomes difficult to reason about um, and uh, in some senses like you you just can't know what's happening because anything can happen and no behave, no specific behavior can be precluded or even handled um, you know uh, differently than any other so the generality is quite difficult to reason about I agree. And and for what it's
2: worth, I have a follow up to, to Goon's post that you're talking about on my blog. It's called On Soft Fork Security that I wrote like several years ago. I think maybe two people in the world ever read it. Uh, so I'm <laughs> mostly trying to shill it to Charlie, who likes reading my blog posts. Uh, it's like way back in the archives uh, and it kind of talks about this. And I agree that almost speaks to like a fundamental time MEV kind of trade off uh, that we've noticed uh, where MEV clearly relates to like fuzziness around time and and global time synchronization and subjectivity around time um and 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 its relationship to kind of deep computer science problems Uh, and i think that fundamental connection is still being explored Uh, since you mentioned goon i also do want to say one other thing which relates to our previous kind of line which is about god mode and kind of leaders in the mev protocol Um, it's worth noting that that's how a lot of cryptos work today but like on a meta level, zooming out, like all we're really doing with like electing a leader, electing a specific minor, is trying to come to a group consensus. Um, and Goon himself has a has a project called uh, Avalanche, which works differently, in which it's much more probabilistic, and you kind of get an approximate consensus by sampling people in the group rather than a strongly consistent log from one leader. Um, it doesn't matter, actually. So it might, you might instinctually say, like, look at that, that solved MEV. There's no more leader, there's no more God mode, there's not this privileged actor anymore. Um, but at the end of the day, like the, the there's still a power structure in that network and the people inside that power structure and that stake distribution and that validator set, um, they still have influence over the outcomes just by like biasing which transactions they announce first or which they prefer versus others or which orders they go with. And even though they're not the God mode leader for that period, they can still influence the outcome probabilistically. Um, so all you're doing, even when you remove leadership Um, as the natural solution to these kinds of problems is like making it more probabilistic, which is still kind of MEV. It's still a payment. It still has all the same economic properties and implications on your consensus game. Uh, So just something I wanted to mention that kind of slip us that there's no like silver bullet, like, oh, let's just get rid of this one God mode guy and suddenly we're not gonna have MEV. It crops up in in all sorts of places you wouldn't expect.
0: Thankless listeners. That's exactly why we're talking about MEV. It is such a pernicious problem. Something that is uh, one of the remaining unsolved problems, I think, with with scaling this credibly new, neutral, open financial systems for the world. And uh, I want to turn this next question back to Phil again because Phil, you've been talking about MEV for years, and I think a lot of people were like unconvinced. Like, yeah, okay, thanks for thinking deep into the future. It's an interesting hypothetical, but like. If if it's coming, Phil, where is it, right? And then there were some posts. People like uh, Georgios and, and Dan Robinson wrote this fantastic post about the dark forest. I think there's a Bankless podcast uh, somewhere about that. We'll include that in the, in the show notes. It sort of illustrated a real world example of MEV. But now we're like starting to measure it, and I think Flashbots is doing some incredible work measuring it. But let's talk about the measurement of MEV. How much MEV is out there right now? And let's let's maybe take Ethereum as a uh, as our example here. Phil, uh, tell us how to measure it and how much of it is there.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great set of questions. So, totally agree with you. Uh, you know, I have been kind of going blue in the face about MEV for a while. It's actually been an interesting kind of process. It's the I think I would say it's the first like really major kind of research meme that I stumbled on a little bit earlier than the rest of the community. So like. <laughs> I spent a while just working on it, measuring it, building bots and it was like I was going a little bit crazy cuz I like wasn't sure if it was real or not. And I know everyone who went through early MEV also had the same journey cuz I I would like show them what I was doing and explain it and like show them code and like numbers and things like that and they'd be like wow, this is a really big thing. Let me go like drop my job and go work on this and then they'd come back and be like well there's only two protocols and there's like not that much here where is it feel like you're lying to us um but i think you know research is about predicting the long term um and there's still so many facets of this that we haven't uncovered yet um so maybe i can start by pumping two flashbots measurement products uh which is uh explore.flashbots.net and dashboard.flashbots.net
0: Um, Well, as you're speaking, I'm actually going to bring that on screen for our our YouTube uh, watchers here. Amazing.
2: Um, So the first one, um, explore.flashbots.net, is designed to measure MEV activity on Ethereum that's kind of outside the Flashbots ecosystem. So this is already pre-existing MEV activity that was going on, things like bots on the network, placing bids with miners over the mempool. Uh, That's what Flashboys 2.0 was about, the research paper um, that kind of started the, the whole MEV meme. Um, things like liquidations, which Charlie and Georgios just talked about, um, things that were kind of going on before Flashbots. Um, And then dashboard.flashbots.net is kind of what is going on on Flashbots. So that's like very Flashbots specific uh, kind of MEV uh, measurements and metrics and like what's the state of the network, who are the miners, who are the searching bots. Uh, what's the distribution what is the total profit and things like that so I encourage you guys to dive deep uh, we're super into transparency to give you some ballpark numbers you know uh, I would like like on on this explore page you can see 12 million dollars of uh, extracted MeV in the last 24 hours there's a few important caveats here number one we have to manually add coverage for different types of MeV to this dashboard right so because there's so many different types of MeV, um, to quantify kind of what these bots are doing and things like that is, is a little bit of an active effort. So we may be lacking in coverage on certain contracts or certain activities, which makes this number kind of a lower estimate for the minimum amount of, uh, of MEV uh, that's present in the network. Um, well, ironically, thing, any estimate yes, is a lower,
3: sadly, any estimate is the lower bound.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing that like MEV in theory is like almost unbounded just because of how the problem is defined and like probably increases over time as like you have more time to like look back at the blockchain and things like that. So like even what's being extracted is not what's being, what's out there. So like 12 million is not the amount of MEV in the last 24 hours, not even close. Like if the bots were playing perfectly, if the miners were playing perfectly, they probably could have gotten a lot more. Uh, So we're, we're kind of bounding it and we encourage people to contribute and improve this by contributing code that improves these estimates. It's all open source. Uh, we're kind of revamping also the code base right now um, because you know it's a little bit too Rust-focused, thanks to uh, someone who's on this call, uh, who's, a, who's a nice Rust developer over here, Georgios. Um, but we're derusting it so that all you find folks in the community can more easily contribute. Uh, context to-
4: being that um, when we were populating <laughs> the initial database, we had uh, Scott Bigelow from the Flashbots team, shout out he wrote the initial like prototype of uh, the MEV inspector. And then basically what I did was that I took this and then kind of rewrote the whole thing in Rust, which is a great memory safe, like very high performance programming language. I'm a big fan. All the programmers in the show should use it. And basically what we did was that we used that in order to be able to index like, like the last two years of history, like in a very short amount of time. Because when we were Um, like developing new inspectors all the time, because we started with just one we started with Uniswap and SushiSwap. But then we started adding more and more and more. So while we were prototyping, we also needed high performance, because each time we added a new inspector, we had to go back to the start of time and reindex everything to make sure we did not miss any MEV opportunity then. And, uh, but it turns out that the language is uh, not as kind of widespread as I would have hoped.
3: Yeah, maybe, Um, um, Ryan, if you want to pull up the Media Explorer dashboard again, maybe Georgios, you could walk us through some of the evolution that's happened over time. Um, Yeah, uh,
4: happy to. So basically, we see that until the DeFi summer, July 1st, um, you don't see much, or well, you don't see much comparatively to what we have now. And the reason for that is that that's when DeFi Summit started and all the yield farming madness also started. Right. And when all the yield farming and gas fees started kicking exactly, in. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And also when all the, exactly, when the gas prices started to go up, um, MEV, like the MEV that goes to miners also went up. And basically what happened over time is that more and more and more protocols started to launch. And we now have seen this kind of evolution of things. What we're missing in this dashboard is Maker. So a large um, source of MEV in March 2020 was Major. And the reason why we do not have Major is because simply the auctions, or rather, the liquidations in Maker, they play out more like um, kind of options instead of the kind of atomic liquidation where you provide the liquidity and instantly you get an asset um, in return. And so these are harder to classify because they may play out on a multi-block time scale. So this thing, it classifies everything that can happen in a single transaction in a single block. But the reality is that the actual MEV that's out there, it may happen across multiple blocks.
1: And so I want to, I want to zoom out again and kind of talk about measuring MEV kind of at, at a high level. You guys talk about how you guys are constantly finding new ways to classify MEZ, MEV and then going back and then adding that to the historical data. And if we if we zoom all the way out we if and try and mev, measure MEV more accurately, it actually kind of turns into this like subjective qualitative analysis as to what actually MEV is. And I'm reminded of the, like the metaphor of like measuring a coastline, right? Where if you measure a coastline with very low resolution from very, very far away, you'll get one relatively no, low number. But then if you increase your uh, resolution and if you increase your granularity, the coastline of a country or whatever can actually become like three times as long. And so what is the actual measure of the coastline? It really depends on the tools that you have available and also what the subjective analysis is for how you measure these things. And so maybe uh, one of you guys could, could walk us through why is it actually not so incredibly like objective about what MEV actually is and, and, and the process for actually measuring these things. Well, um, Char- Charlie, let's start with you.
3: Uh, sure so I think um you know maybe one way to think about it would be uh, it's less a question of like what is and is not MeV uh, and more just a question of like what is feasible to like heuristically um, kind of classify or, or rather identify um so the the hindsight looking change uh, would not be um you know like that we um uh, uh, Decided that some activity, you know, was in fact MEV. It's that we recognize it was happening. Uh, we add the heuristic, and then we look back at how much MEV has been collected over time. And so, part of the you know lower bound estimate today element of it is, um, you know, as we add more and more sort of uh, heuristic, uh, as we can identify more and more um, types of these behaviors heuristically. Uh, and then we can also go back in hindsight and see how much we, how much we missed. So three years from now, we might look back and be like, oh man, we were off by a factor of a hundred
4: mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Correct. And uh, ba- what Charlie said was extremely accurate. So building the software, there is no kind of arbitrary rule that said, um, this is MEV, this is not like some very generic thing. What the software does is that it literally goes like step by step in the transaction and it sees does this match one of the things that I discussed in my call with Phil last night about the heuristics that we'd want to classify for? There is no like automatic thing which you, know, you point it to and it tells you this is MEV and it has a million dollars in it. It's literally like very, very manual. So I-, I want to stress basically that the thing that we found right now, it, it may be like so big, more bigger than we ever imagined.
0: So uh, what might not be obvious to those listening on the podcast is we were showing a Flashbots UI and Explorer, which shows one of these hockey stick like growth curves that we are so familiar with in crypto. But this is a depiction of MEV growth over time. Right. And Georgios was saying it started in DeFi summer At, at that point in time about, you know, three and a half million or so total MEV was able to be measured. Now, flash forward to today, we're at uh, over half a million, uh, sorry, half a billion dollars in MEV. I want to ask this question to to Phil maybe. Is this sort of what you predicted, kind of a hockey stick-like growth of MEV? And what accounts for this growth? Like, where's it all coming from? Is it the case that because The Ethereum economy is booming and DeFi is booming. We get all of these new MEV opportunities. Characterize that for us, Phil.
2: So in terms of what I was predicting, I'm actually terrible at making predictions and like my track records of uh, like, you know, investments and like being in crypto for a long time is like very much proof of that. So I didn't really have any any intuition on the trajectory. I didn't know whether it would take like one year, two years, five years, 10 years. Uh, It all happened kind of a lot quicker than I expected. Uh, It seemed a lot slower at first, but like in retrospect, in the last like two or three years, it's been all a lot quicker than I expected, I think. Um, The only thing I predicted was that kind of the incentives were set up that like, ultimately, this would be extracted. And there was no kind of way around that. That was prediction A. Um, Prediction B was that there was a big chance that it would be centralizing uh, on the network. Uh, If you had certain specialized actors, people who used information asymmetry, uh, actors like hedge funds in traditional finance or other kind of Uh, silos of knowledge, I thought those were all very possible and that those would become the most competitive miners if nothing was done uh, to kind of distribute rewards or otherwise redesign the system. Uh, Because those miners would be more profitable than other miners and it would be in their interest uh, if Ethereum especially stayed on proof of work long term to kind of centralize power to themselves and use that competitive edge to drive others out of the the miner and mining pool game. Um, And we have seen that to an extent. We've seen mining pools like Ethermine, uh kind of picking up uh projects that would indicate that they're working towards that direction um so i think those were kind of my main predictions um and also that all these things would kind of harm user fairness and and cause financial loss and that people would continue carelessly designing systems without thinking about mev Uh, so i think all those have kind of somewhat come true i hope that in the future uh as as the problem is accelerating and i think the meme is taking off much more than i ever thought it would that people think a lot more carefully when they're developing dApps on kind of the ground floor about what MEV we're exposing and what this means for our users. Um, other than that, I think things things are going relatively on track and there's still a big possibility for MEV to be a really terrible centralizing thing for cryptocurrency, uh, which we definitely want to avoid.
3: Yeah. Um, I would maybe just add on kind of the question around like, uh, Will it get worse, or like, you know, did we expect this to happen so quickly? Um, I mean, it, it's always hard to predict the future, but like, one mental model that I kind of have for MEV generally um, is uh, that it kind of acts like pressure uh, on the incentives of the system. Like, we've kind of designed this nice little box. Um, and there are certain valves on it, like transaction fees and others, um, that um, the pressure created by uh, like all the economic incentives can escape out of. Um, and so like as MEV started to take off this summer, something that we uh, saw happen was uh, back running started, which is a uh, normal Ethereum transaction uh, or ga- uh, priority gas auctions, you can bid for priority get your in transaction in front of another uh what you what those auctions don't allow you to do is bid to get behind someone else however the default geth config at that point in time this summer uh basically said that when these transactions have the same gas fee like it's random which one ends up getting included behind the other so uh, we started seeing people sandwiching trades, not just front running them, meaning getting a transaction in front and spamming a ton of them, spamming a ton of transactions to hopefully probabilistically get one in behind as well. Um, then the, uh, because this is not a consensus level uh, kind of constraint, it's based on like the configuration of gas miners and how they handle uh, transactions with the same gas price. Uh, they decided to change it away from random to stop the spam. Uh, after that happened, a lot more miners started adopting a lot more proprietary solutions, uh, and my um, I, I think that like the you know expectation that things uh, kind of continue down this route for me is like there is a lot of pressure, um, and every time we've tried to like close off valves. Um, that allowed it to escape. Uh, we've. It seems like we've just pushed the system for uh, push miners further and further uh, towards just like leaving the sort of default state. Um, and so, like I would say that in hindsight, like the decision to change the Gef config to prevent back running almost certainly accelerated the adoption of um, you know uh, like custom mining software. Um, and so, to the extent that's true, it's sort of like. Um, uh i think you know indicative of like that trend likely uh continuing
0: we really are squeezing the balloon with this mev problem just like the air just seeps into another pocket of the balloon and guys if you were wondering why gas fees were so crazy this summer users DeFi users this is part of the reason why this sort of activity goes on david i think you've got next
1: Yeah, the the metaphor of the balloon is a really apt one and actually does like a very good job explaining why we all care about MEV is it seems to be this thing that is intrinsically difficult to capture and harness yet. If we can capture and harness it a lot of potential comes out of this, and so I think this is actually a great place to turn to uh, the con the the topic of that the Flashbots uh, project that Phil is working on which, uh, in, in my mind is a an attempt to harness and capture MEV and make sure that it behaves in the way that we want it to. Uh, And so Phil, maybe you could walk us down like the the project of Flashbots. Like first off, what is the goal of Flashbots uh, and how and why are, are miners incentivized to participate in Flashbots in the first place?
2: Yeah, so the goal of Flashbots is to democratize MEV basically so to make sure that if possible, and maybe it's not possible, there's still an open question that as Charlie said MEV could be totally unfair and and torpedo all of cryptocurrency. But if that's not the case, and it is possible, then what we want to do is we want to drive miners to a state where MEV is well distributed, um, where the ecosystem of MEV extraction is efficient. Uh, because that's important for network security. Um, If it's not efficient, that becomes an attack vector, where the profits are democratized to all the miners in the system uh, in a way that's not centralizing, Uh, where the system stability is ensured and where the UX of everyone else in the ecosystem from client devs to layer one devs to layer two devs to dap users to dap devs, everyone else in the ecosystem is not trashed by MEV to the point where the systems become unusable expensive, unfair, um, uncertain, or otherwise risky. Um, So the goal of Flashbots is to kind of form an open source research and development collective where we create um, products, we create research, we create other artifacts and other ventures and structures that are intended to shift the incentives of the MEV game towards a more decentralized uh, future that's more aligned with cryptocurrency and with the open source free software movement that backs cryptocurrency itself, uh, rather than purely fueling information asymmetry. So, as part of that mission, one of the products that we've released so far is called MEVGeth or MEVGeth. And uh, it's, a, it's a patch to the Go Ethereum reference implementation, client implementation, um, that basically allows miners to create a channel by which people on the network can submit bids to them for private uh, bundles of transactions to be mined. Those bundles containing other people's transactions or their own private transactions. Um, This allows arbitrageurs and other bots who are running economic strategies on the Ethereum network to have a more efficient channel to communicate with miners than the mempool. Why did we build this? Because we saw MEV kind of taking off. And we saw miners building these channels independently and individually as a centralizing force. So we thought that having one single community channel across all miners um, that maximized also bot activity on that channel would be the most beneficial equilibrium from which we can then build a more decentralized, more robust, kind of long-term looking ecosystem. Uh, We thought we had a better chance in that kind of decentralized protocol model that we were striving for, rather than allowing the fragmentation to kind of naturally take shape, uh, which possibly could lead to the fulfillment of the, the predictions I made about MEV being centralizing and centralizing to actors like hedge funds. Uh, so that's why we built MevGeth. Why do miners run it? Because it strictly increases your profit over running Geth. Uh, if if any part of MEV MEVGeth breaks, if Flashbots fails, if whatever happens, there's a strict security property in MEV MEVGeth. Um, and it is alpha software, so run it at your own risk. It's not fully audited. But it is coded in a way um, such that at any point in time, if you mine on top of a block provided by MEV geth, you will make at least as much money as as uh, uh, mining on top of geth. So in basically all aspects, it gracefully degrades to the status quo, um, which we think is the optimum for network resilience, Uh, and which we think is the optimum for also miners to make it a very easy decision to switch. You don't have to do complex reasoning. You just need to kind of run this software um, and let the decentralized community compete to kind of maximize your share uh, of the MEV game. Um, and, And a lot of the work of developing the software and staying at the bleeding edge of actually understanding and processing MEV, which is a constant arms race, is outsourced to this decentralized marketplace rather than needing to be performed in house by each miner and needing to be duplicated and becoming kind of a centralized information silo source Um, so that's why we built it and that's kind of what it does Uh, it's not the only thing flashbots is going to build we have a a long agenda of uh, kind of of projects and, and products we want to do in the mev space with the broader goal of really aligning the incentives of mev and cryptocurrency as a whole
1: and that's really the through line that I see with Flashbots and, and overall crypto economics at large is that it's really, crypto economics is a sandbox for tinkering with human incentives and with clever people like like your, uh, the three panelists that we have here. Uh, if we can figure out a way to incentivize people to stay with the group, then then we will figure that out and implement that. That's like the optimistic case. the The, the model for Flashbots to me is getting people to coordinate together for commonly shared good and it only actually works if there's financial incentive to participate in the network and so Phil where where does this how do you expand upon this model uh what are like the next steps for for flashbots to increasing its overall usage and adoption and making sure that the, it, it reminds me of the the model the theory of like the the the, the, the Leviathan right where uh, we have this uh, this powerful person with the, with a sword that controls the body and it controls the body via force but like Flashbots controls the c- tries to keep the body composed via rational economic incentives. How does how does the uh, quote unquote metaphorical Leviathan that is the Flashbots Grow to compose everyone and stay, and keeps the body composed as a whole. Like, what are the next steps for for growing the the the, the Leviathan, if you will?
2: Yeah, I think there's a million different things we're doing just in parallel, um, and I think anyone in the community can come be involved. Uh, one of the next steps is building a community, so come join our Discord and be part of this question of organizational design and how we build anti fragile organizations and how we align these incentives. I think there's a lot of question mark question mark question marks there Uh, maybe i'll give you some like immediate random samplings of things we're doing at flashbots uh, but but it's far from exhaustive Um, one of them is decentralizing ourselves so right now flashbots mainly is in a in a kind of alpha testing mode with our software where we're very much reliant on some centralized infrastructure that we um, operate Um, not fully reliant in that like people have forked this and you can use flashbots without using this infrastructure Um, But we're not comfortable giving the software to miners and saying like, just remove this, because then it opens up attacks that we can't control. Um, um, So removing our need to police things like spam on the network um, and police things like privacy, uh, this privacy property that we're kind of enforcing as this uh, incentive cartel that you basically mentioned, that's how we're doing it. Um, Removing ourselves from those equations are kind of the immediate next technical steps for our current product line. Um, both through crypto-economic and through cryptographic means. We want to provide full privacy of anything going through the Flashbots network without relying on centralized parties um, and without relying on on trust assumptions. Um, uh, We want to also provide spam resistance so that we're not needed on the network whatsoever. Um, Once we've done that, we're also doing a lot of work on integrations. So looking at things like ETH2, layer twos that are coming up, Uh, all these other blockchains, uh, the universe of Cosmos parachains and Polkadot chains, and and, then, sorry, uh, I might be mixing my terminology, but like basically integrating all these other systems um, into Flashbots and creating basically the ultimate uh, preference expression engine for financial bots in the cryptocurrency ecosystem across any chain, across multiple chains um this is kind of work we're doing uh and then also just a lot of ethical work a lot of work on governance um on how to ensure we build an organization that does good research that doesn't lead to runaway information asymmetry how we contribute back to the open source commons um, and the standards that we use for doing that that's a lot of organizational design work we're doing right now and we do have regular community calls um, about all of these subjects uh so those are as i see it the kind of immediate challenges is just making sure all incentives are aligned in a robust organizational way, and that no trust is required anywhere in the system. Those are kind of the near-term goals. Um, and the longer-term goals are to, to create the platform for the robot financial revolution, basically, and you know give people this ability to, in a decentralized and completely permissionless way, express their preferences um, and express them securely uh, in these auction systems and in, in these cryptocurrency networks.
0: So, Phil, a lot of what you've been talking about with the the success of Flashbots happens at a level I think the typical DeFi user might not be aware even exists or even sort of notice. But um, I I think a lot of the activity that Flashbots is is harnessing was was happening on Ethereum main chain inside of the mempool, and uh, ever since the the Flashbots project has launched, some of that activity has actually shifted to the Flashbots network which is super interesting which uh, i think defy users might have experienced in the form of, of lower gas fees maybe can you confirm whether that's true because that's sort of a the, the rumor that's going around like some of this mev activity instead of it happening on ethereum main chain is now happening in this in this private network and that has contributed to reduction of of gas fees and uh, and costs for transactions on the Ethereum mainnet. To what extent is Flashbots responsible for that? And can we thank you for that?
2: I think it's really too soon to tell. I think people really like that meme and like uh, as much as I wish I could say, like yes, it's all us. I think we want to make cryptocurrencies more efficient and we've done a lot of work on that front. Like We've definitely reduced congestion on chain. We've reduced PGAs. Uh, there's less estimator inaccuracy as a result of all these things. And there's just more headroom Uh, as well as more minor revenue, which leads to things like decreases in uh, gas token and chi minting and other sorts of pathological activity. Uh, So I think Flashbots' mission is to reduce impact on these commons and bots were were trashing these commons before. They were like trashing the network and trashing the gas space and like, we've brought a lot of that down. Uh, That being said, I think a lot of other things also contributed to low gas prices like an increase in supply of gas um, and a general stability in price for a while um, uh, in cryptocurrency. So I think Flashbots has helped a lot put downward pressure, uh, but there's also a lot of other downward pressure. And without like really sophisticated economic modeling, it's hard to take credit. Um, the only thing I'll say there is like you know we're we're definitely working in that direction, and 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 we one of our goals is to make things more efficient. And I think that's definitely happened. Um, And and good side effects of that are like part of what we wanna do here because we don't want a situation where there's a few MEV bots kind of uh, pissing all over the commons and like ruining the network bandwidth and things like that just so they can make their arbitrage profit.
0: Before we leave this topic and talk about sort of futures and some other things, uh, curious, Charlie and and Georgios, do you have any insights? Uh, Charlie first
3: uh yeah i think um beyond everything that phil said uh a maximally successful version of Flashbots uh is a future in which ethereum never experiences a time banded attack end of the day
1: well we're gonna have to go into to what that is i know we talked about it briefly but can you just go ahead and give us a recap on a time banded attack and why it's so critical to not have that
3: yeah, the, the time banded attack. Uh, if we didn't cover it earlier, it's kind of like um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a proper analogy, but I don't know. It's it's just it, it, the, the the doomsday scenario of MEV. It's it's the idea that um, uh, you know when blockchains are reorged, uh, which happens, you know, small reorgs happen fairly frequently. Um, everybody knows sometimes you know it seems like your transaction has one confirmation, and it turns out that it doesn't. Um, MEV uh, can be extracted from back in time. So if I uh, let's say, for example, there's you know five blocks with like a ton of MEV in them, lots of competition, uh, tons of tons of trades, whatever. Uh, and 50 blocks later, uh, it turns out that Georgios on the side here has been shadow mining uh, a side chain and reorgs the whole thing capturing all of the MEV available in those 50 blocks, not only the ME, and importantly, not only whatever MEV uh, you know was captured by actors uh, on the previously canonical version of the chain, but he can arbitrarily reorder transactions in every one of those blocks, meaning uh, that it gives you uh, not just like the sort of God power uh, mode as a leader, uh within a single block but the ability to do that over multiple blocks so another example of this would be i take out uh let's say i'm a miner i take out a trillion dollars uh you know in die debts and then i just wait to see what happens to the price of ether and if i don't like it never it's like it never happened it's gone from the canonical chain um so time time bandits are are like like the 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 the, you know they're, they're kind of terrifying
1: uh, it's like the worst possible form of MEV, right? It's like if, if uh, Bankless listeners will be familiar with the concept of Moloch, right? Like it is literally the instantiation of Moloch in a single instance of of being reorged. Coordination failure, absolute coordination failure. Yeah, quite quite literally, right? Because it's getting reorged. Hey, Bankless Nation, I hope you're enjoying the MEV panel thus far. In the second half of this conversation, we go into proof of stake in EIP one five five nine and how they do or do not impact mev we also talk about l2s and and the relationship between l2s and mev and how there's both mev on the l2 and there's mev on the l1 and those things actually interact uh, and then we also get into a conversation with phil about the inherently centralizing force that is MEV, especially as it relates to both L2s and L1s. Uh, And then we also get into a more philosophical, broader conversation, which, frankly, I only understood like chunks of it. And so I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this after I do some Google searching and homework. This is one of those episodes where it's not just for you guys, but it's also for me and Ryan to get our learning in as well. So I really hope you guys are enjoying this panel. But first, before we get into the second half of this conversation, we have to pause and talk a moment about these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Balancer is DeFi's most powerful automated market maker. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs of DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indexes, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer Smart Pools could be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions. Or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we used a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, IDLE tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool. To top things off, Balancer is reimbursing all gas costs with BAL rewards, meaning that all your gas costs are returned to your wallet with the Balancer governance token. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the Balancer pools at pools.balancer.exchange. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com gobankless And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com gobankless so, one one of the interesting byproducts uh, of EIP one five five nine is it actually is a significant MEV mitigator. Uh, and so, uh, maybe we can talk about MEV and how it relates, or EIP one five five nine and
4: how it relates to to MEV. Uh, Giorgio, is going to hand this one to you. Of course, both both me and Phil are are laughing because I think David, we've had this discussion on Twitter before. I don't mm-hmm. think that the EIP one five five nine actually addresses MEV at all. Zero, um, not at all, not in the slightest. Zero, noodle, nada, nothing. Um, basically, marginally, uh, marginally. Uh, ma- marginally, maybe, but not, uh, not at the at the scale that we need. I don't think that it would matter at all. Like you could make a very weak argument that uh, maybe, you know, the tips that go to the miners are less and hence, you know, it's less than what they got before and hence uh, it's less MEV, but not really. ep 1559 is a gas market change um, it changes how we bid for transactions in the system but it does not change the way transactions are ordered in the system there still is a miner that has the god mode who and has full uh, authority over which transaction gets executed when if 1559 does not change this change this at all hence I do not think that it matters at all for MV. It mattered for a lot of other very important things, but not for MV, unfortunately.
0: So, Phil, you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I totally uh, would agree with that. So, you know, nothing constrains miners to behave the way they, they are told to order things in 1559. They still have a lot of degrees of freedom in the system of like, where to insert their own transactions, whose transactions to include in this block or not, um, and all these other kind of freedoms that we mentioned that are valuable are still there. What's changed is a little bit how much, uh, the only thing that changes is how each transaction's cost is calculated basically. Um, But that basically only matters to the opportunity cost of like reordering things, which is like a very minor part of the calculation of like whether a miner will extract the MEV or not. And the change of like burning the, the, the base fee because the base fee is probably gonna be very small uh, for any meaningful MEV opportunity with regards to the size of the MEV, doesn't make a substantial difference in any of those calculations, even if it does economically make a difference in pricing on the chain and like requires a burn. Um, So yeah, fundamentally, MEV is still pretty much exactly the same, Flashbots keeps working as is. Um, I think one interesting thing 1559 does do, which has been needed for a long time, is to separate the market out for priority and inclusion. There are some users that just want their transaction to go in in like the next five minutes 10 minutes whatever they want it quickly they don't care necessarily that it's the next block or it's at the first position in the next block right they just want it in um and so for those users i think the 1559 mechanism makes a lot of sense because it gives them some good guarantees that they'll be in eventually within some time period and it gives them predictability on how to choose how much to pay uh, which they don't have right now and which is a very like complex ugly piece of software that all wallets have to include So in eliminating those things it's great Uh, but the market for priority for who gets in first um Mm -hmm. it doesn't change that at all and uh, i expect flashbots you know will run in parallel to 1559 Uh, actually i know that will happen and in fact like one of the major marketing pushes behind why flashbots was adopted in the miner community was miners looking at the revenue post 1559 and saying like we're going to make a lot less for simple inclusion um, and so we need to kind of increase our revenue elsewhere. And therefore, they looked at MEV. Um, so if anything, it's really accelerated the MEV game uh, more <laughs> than mitigated it. But but really, it's kind of a, a separate orthogonal
1: issue. Right. Uh, bankless listeners will be f- familiar with EIP 1559 because we talk about it endlessly. But just, just to recap, we have the base fee, which gets burned. But what you guys are saying is that really the MEV game happens inside of the tip sphere, which is completely unrelated from the base fee, right? Because the the demand to capture some amount of MEV will be fully expressed by the tip, not by the base fee. Would you guys agree with that?
2: It's not just in the tip, it's just in all payments. So the tip is one example, but even Mm -hmm. if there was no tip, you could just have a transaction that transfers uh, money to eth.coinbase. Uh, you know, or block.coinbase from inside the the kind of system. There's an opcode that lets you pay the miner in a bespoke way in any kind Mm -hmm. of transaction you want. So even if there was zero tip and 1559 was the only pricing mechanism, you could still just make a direct transfer in a smart contract to the miner and that would constitute basically an implicit tip. Uh, the reason the tip was was added was to kind of stop people from doing this uh so so the tip is one place but there's like that's not the only place flashbots operates uh we also take into account kind of these other more bespoke payments Mm
3: -hmm. yeah it's it's kind of also like you know if it weren't included right then like an off-chain market would like certainly be created there's you know half a billion dollars whatever that have been extracted i think the uh like um Pretty much anything that you do to try to prevent miners from accessing MEV, uh, because you can't actually get rid of the MEV itself, uh, is liable to incentivize the creation of like off-chain or off-protocol mechanisms uh, to access it. So,
0: OK, well, let's talk about another upcoming protocol level change to Ethereum, which um, has got to affect something, you guys tell us. So that is uh, staking, proof of stake. So basically, the way I think about this high level is that all of the miners, um, they lose their responsibilities, and those responsibilities turn over to the validators, those with stake inside of the Ethereum network. So you've got a new set of stakeholders, and what staking does is it it, it essentially merges uh, the holders of ETH, the asset, with the obligations of, of validation. So this doesn't eliminate MEV. I think anyone who's listened up to this point and understood up to this point can understand that, but it's got to direct it to a new set of stakeholders. What are the implications of
4: that? All right, Georgius, let's start with you. There is some impact this time, but I, but to kind of stress it, MEV is again, an ordering um, problem. It is about who orders and how. So Proof-of-stake changes one thing, how, order, how how validators are elected. In proof-of-work, validators, rather, block producers, are elected randomly. You can never know who the next miner is with absolute certainty. In proof-of-stake, specifically, Ethereum 2 proof-of-stake, not any kind of proof-of-stake, because the protocol details may change things. In Ethereum's proof-of-stake, once you are a validator, you can always know the validators for the next 12 minutes, uh, which is in two lingo, two epochs. What this implies is that if I know that I will be the next validator, and then I know that my friend Charlie is going to be the next validator, and then I know that Phil is going to be the next validator, I can call them, and I can call I can tell them, hey, guys, like we will have a guaranteed three-block opportunity to do whatever we want. Um, with Ethereum. Um, so, what this allows is for miners to, or rather block producers, to execute multi block MEV extraction tactics reliably, while these before were only probabilistic. And because they were probabilistic, they were probably not something we would see. And a very trivial example of that would be manipulating Uniswap oracles, uh, Uniswap v2's oracles. Um, for example require that they that require that rather they snapshot the value from the last transaction in the block and they use that to kind of determine the price in that block however if i'm um, a trader or rather if i'm a validator i can manipulate the price to wherever i want in the last transaction of the block and the next block i can then push it back to wherever I, wherever it was without realizing any loss um net of fees um so the implication is basically that miners will be uh, validators will be able to execute these kinds of attacks reliably.
0: So you think it makes the problem worse,
4: George, Yes. I think so.
0: Well, uh, let's talk about another implication of this, which is you have completely changed the, uh, the miners out. You've swapped them out for ETH holders. So if you are a holder of Ether as an asset, right? you are a potential recipient, if you choose to stake and validate, you are a potential recipient of this MEV versus miners. That has some effect. So I guess, rather than miners receiving sort of the MEV payment, maybe the bribe, as some might call it, uh, validators are the new recipients of this MEV payment. Um, Maybe bullish the price of ETH, but not bullish the credible neutrality of the network.
4: I don't know about uh, bullish or not. Um, What I do know is that right now validators on ETH2 are earning a fixed percentage um, on their staked assets. Once the ETH2 merge happens, validators will also start earning transaction fees and MEV. And of course, what this means, is that the APR for staking would be higher because as a validator, you now also earn MEV. Um, So that's kind of a positive um, byproduct of the merge to contrast the maybe negative um, out there attack that I mentioned earlier.
2: I think politically it changes a lot of things too in that it changes the power distribution, which fuels how MEV expresses itself in the real world. So zooming out, like it's always important to also consider the social angle of these systems we're building and how they'll interact with society. Um, Miners kind of have an incentive structure, which because there's a high barrier to entry and a lot of capital required has kind of taken a particular structure in the real world. So like often you have very scoped business entities that exist to extract a certain amount of profit in a scoped way and have like investors and, and operations and things like that um in the validator world you have very different politics so in the large validator community you have things like exchanges which are competing for users and trying to maximize user yields there you might see things like mev farming you might see things like centralization through proprietary mev strategies or partnership with uh, information asymmetry driving entities that i mentioned like hedge funds um, you also have large holders in that picture um, uh, who maybe have less technical resource access and sophistication but a lot of system and and, and and incentive alignment. And you also have a long tail of smallholders who are trying to get access to APR and trying to get yields basically um, without, without kind of needing this full control and without having as big of a piece of the pie as these other actors. Uh, so that political landscape is really different than miners on Ethereum today, where like it's much more of an even pie chart. Um, a few things I think that says is that number one, it's really important for these small guys to be able to access their percentage of the MEV that they're owed. Um, if they, if you have 0.0001% of the network and you can't get 0.0001% of the MEV, you'll go to Coinbase instead. You'll go somewhere else. And that'll be a centralizing force to access these profits. So democratizing this and creating this network um, where each validator and each miner doesn't have to be doing the work themselves to get most of these profits, I think is critical to the decentralization of proof of stake. And it's like a big part of how we view this transition um, at Flashbots, enshrining that. Um, And also being aware of these change power dynamics. We don't know how this will play out yet. I think these are all big question marks. So as much as I wish I can predict the future, I can just say like these things are gonna change and these actors will be relevant uh, increasingly in the future and there will be kind of politics and drama there that we can't predict yet.
1: I think the through line that listeners should really be uh, cognizant of is we just talked about EIP-1559, we just talked about proof of stake, and in neither of these situations did the MEV situation really improve all that much and perhaps even gets worse, Uh, and that kind of just illustrates the perniciousness of this problem, and what Phil is really talking about is that if we do not figure this out, then the whole argument of that you know, proof of stake makes the wealthier wealthy. There are plenty of arguments as to why that's not true. But one of the biggest uh, perhaps uh, manifestations of a future version of the world is that we cannot solve MEV and the, the wealth distribution of proof of stake just becomes so incredibly centralized because of the natural incentives that uh, proof of stake just really just the, the power asymmetries just accrue faster and faster and faster to the large stakeholders.
0: I want to maybe bring up uh, two other implications that that I'm seeing and ask the panelists about this. Um one is and, and bankless listeners will be familiar with all of our episodes that we did with Justin Drake about uh, eth being sort of an ultrasound money mm-hmm. and even like modeling that out with like what does a world look like when validators are receiving issuance validators are also receiving transaction fees he did not model out what it looks like when validators receive MEV which could be an absolute massive portion of revenue flows. And to the points David just meant, that has, and the point of this entire podcast is that has some negative uh effects, negative externalities to the credible neutrality of Ethereum potentially. And also yet I'm linking this to a comment that Georgios made uh in the introduction, which is that could also be fuel to pay for network security at the same time, because it means ETH issuance can be effectively lower. Why? Because it's being paid by not just transaction fees, by large amounts of MEV as well. Um, Those are two implications like in my mind, and and also like just the implication, I guess, in in the short run, uh, wow, like all of this revenue flowing to ETH holders, like, wow, okay. Um, but I want to get the panelists' re- reaction to, uh, to to maybe that. Is there some flip side that is actually good from an economic security perspective? And since, Georgios, you brought this up, maybe I'll turn it to you first.
4: Candidly, not much to add, Ryan. I think you explained it uh, very well. I think that MEV-like transaction fees can be a source of security budget in the future. And uh, I think it remains to be seen whether it will be enough of a security budget
2: yeah i think a little bit to that i guess there's there's like small things we can do that change things a lot right like for example just designing systems in an mev aware way like if to expose uh, MEV, you need to be mined on top of a particular block. If you add that as a condition to your transaction, it stops how deep you can reorg. And it affects things like time-banded attacks a lot without being a substantial UX penalty. So there's a lot of like low-hanging fruit mitigations uh, like this that could probably change these equilibriums a lot and like make MEV a better security budget. Uh, I think there are worlds in which MEV is a good security budget and worlds in which it's a horrible security budget. <laughs> and it depends how we design our mechanisms and it depends how things play out socially and on all these other factors, which are really hard to predict or even model. Uh, but I, I believe both of these futures exist and we should try to like work towards the one where it's maximally not bad as we can We can sort of build. Uh, well said, and that's Phil. kind
3: of what we're trying to do. Well said. There's also a good, very obscure, but good post back from like May 2020 by Vitalik um, uh, on Medium. Uh, that I can send you the link to afterwards, um, where he talks about um, uh, basically cent- you know, MEV as like a centralization prone uh, kind of revenue stream and that in a roll-up centric Ethereum, uh, although I guess this was probably written before a roll-up centric Ethereum roadmap was written, but uh, anyway. Uh, that we might want to centralize MEV extraction into roll-up sequencers, uh, given that like it's very high fixed cost, um, probably more so than mining itself, and definitely proof of stake. Um, and that if we're not able to harness the MEV uh, revenue stream as a security budget, we could potentially at least quarantine it uh, off, um, essentially, um, you know, more bifurcated from like the core consensus engine and. and um, make in the worst case, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, like it, if we needed the hard fork to fix something, it might be easier if the revenue stream
4: is quarantined off. The basically, the, con- the action of uh, centralizing MEV on layer two sequencer networks, it does not remove the MEV, but it moves it somewhere else where it can be contained and basically not leak into the security of the rest of the system.
1: right. that actually that's exactly where we wanted to go next. And so sequencers on layer twos, uh, entities that are responsible for ordering transaction is a totally different designscape of MeV that's separate from the Ethereum mainnet, but it is MeV all the same. And there's you know the whoever gets to, to aggregate transactions on l twos, Gets to do get, extract that value, and then and then the transactions go to the L1s, and then there's L1 MEV uh, miners or validators as well. So let, let, let's talk about some of the uh, structural differences or similarities between MEV on L1 versus MEV on L2s, 2 probably in, under the context of Optimism and and uh, Arbitrum, because I know these two these are the two L2s that are really going head on after this. Um, Georgios, I'll, I'll turn that to you. How is MEV the same, and how is MEV different on L2?
4: I mean. In the end, a layer two, when we call, rather when we talk about layer two today, I think that we really refer to a, a rollup, an optimistic or a ZK rollup. That's what uh, layer two typically refers to. Agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, this may also be relevant given discussions in the recent uh, days around what a sidechain and what a layer two is. Um, however, I want to stress that if the rollup has programmability. The mev it exposes is the same as if that thing would have been a layer one so in a way mev is not a property of whether it is layer one or layer two, it is a property of how much ordering. uh, Is allowed in the system and how much uh, programmability is in the system had to um, to Charlie for his blog post uh, clearly laying out that uh, that aspect so specifically I think that um, again it matters on the election process for um, the person who will order transactions. Optimism's design specifies the so-called MEV auctions where the MEV auction basically says that if there is um, some amount of MEV MEV in the layer two, um, then the sequencer that wants to extract it should be able to pay up to that amount um, to be elected to become the next block producer. And that's what the design, uh, rather that's what the implementation will be eventually it's not there today. And there's no kind of commitment to dates on when that would be live. For Arbitrum, I think that right now there's similarly kind of like a fixed or a fixed um, scheme for how validators, how how sequencers are elected. If it's one, it's one, if it's many, I think it would be something like a round robin based on stake, um, which means that if you own more stake in the system, you get uh, elected more often. But what uh, Arbitrum also has been working on, which Phil maybe has some thoughts on, is uh, the so-called fair ordering algorithms, where they say that instead of having one person decide on the ordering, you have, let's say, all the consensus participants to agree on the ordering. And this is basically the same thing as uh, running a Tendermint uh, or a BFT kind of uh, blockchain, where two-thirds of the stake first need to agree On the ordering and then only does execution happen
3: yeah and you can in fact add like a threshold signal i mean if you're using like bls signatures then as like part of uh, you know a a bft style protocol then you can just have the uh, threshold signatures unblind after uh, final uh, after finality Um, but obviously that restricts the uh, set of possible participants given that you have like a quadratic communication constraint on the um Uh, consensus process.
0: So I mean, guys, is the story here that we've just uh, squeezed the balloon once again, and now move the MEV problem back to layer twos and back to roll ups? What do you think, Phil?
2: I think this is where the coastline analogy you mentioned before is most accurate. So I think layer two is like a fractal instance of layer one, like there is no layer two and layer one, there are just blockchains and how they connect to each other. Uh, layer two is like another chain of blocks with its own process for designing ordering. So depending on how you design it, it might have the same exact MEV problems as a similar layer one would have. Um, you could on each say like, Oh, we're just going to give all the MEV to Vitalik and like hard code that in the protocol. And that would work. Right. And that's basically what optimism he is. just give it to
0: charity though, Phil.
2: V zero. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever you want to do. Um, uh, so with a, with a centralized solution, that's basically um, what you're doing um, in terms of, kind of fairness protocols, I think there are a lot of, um, that's kind of what we're describing with these kind of BFT style protocols and and what Arbitrum is trying to do, where they say like, here's some process that we consider more fair for some reason. um, And they state why this process is more fair. Um, Usually it's because it makes some claim, like if three out of the five nodes we have, here's your transaction before mine, your transaction will definitely get in and it'll definitely be before mine. And so, therefore, that's a fairness property that takes away from ordering. Uh, that being said, the way they express this fairness is in like computer science terms, not in economics terms or, or really like fundamentally speaking to MEV. Um, so, it doesn't talk about things like what if your assumptions fail and those three nodes collude against you. Um, What is the incentive for these nodes to honestly follow the protocol? And like, is it detectable if they don't? How do network assumptions play into this? Um, How do, which assumptions do we have to accept as users of the protocol um, to kind of engage in this protocol and believe that it's going to give us the output? So these are all kind of very deep parameterization questions that themselves introduce MEV and kind of represent blockchain assumptions. Um, So in all these cases, in layer twos and layer ones and fairness protocols, these are all basically just blockchains. They all kind of have their own MEV that you can think about, that you can calculate. And they also have MEV across them. So layer 2 is going to have MEV that's fractally larger, almost like the coastline, right? Like when you combine it with the layer 1 to which it's anchored. Because if you're in a privileged position on both layer 1 and layer 2, you can amplify your own attacks on each one. You can make your layer 1 attacks more powerful with the economic degrees of freedom you have in controlling value flow on layer 2. And therefore, how that flows back into layer one, and you can make your your um, layer two attacks more valuable using things like layer one censorship um, and reordering and other messing with the kind of core security anchoring of that system. Um right.
0: So, so let me so. ask you. The the panel is kind of a, a follow up to that, right? So we we've, we've just chased MEV to a roll up, right? We've squeezed the balloon. Now Moloch lives on a roll up, but we still have the same MEV problem, except for the fact, layer twos can harness a thousand different experiments at once, right? So the Ethereum uh, settlement layer, other chains like other layer ones like it, they have to ossify over time. Uh, they can't experiment with new fairness protocols to try to solve the MEV problem as rapidly. They certainly can't iterate as fast. Maybe I'll turn this question to to Charlie. So. We've, we've chased the MEV problem to layer twos. Do you think that there is some magic protocol out there, some magic mechanism we will be un, uh, able to uncover to actually like slay Moloch and solve MEV or at least drastically mitigate it on layer two? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about that, Charlie? So I, I have a
3: couple of thoughts. And first, it's a fantastic question. Um, I think that there will that there is a wide space of experimentation that's possible in layer two, um, and I think that um, it is going to give us the opportunity um, to kind of try designing more um, potentially application specific um, uh, kind of controls. I think that for rollups where you know it's kind of, for rollups which basically just emulate like the EVM, um, like the problem is. Essentially identical modulo the sequencer selection. Um, Just, I mean, like, given the nature of their design. um, I think it's possible, though, that we're going to start seeing more um, like application specific uh, L2s um, that start to incorporate like. Well, application specific transaction fee orderings, uh, or which make it easier to add stuff like VDF uh, receipts or do threshold signing um, for ordering. Um, I would say that, like, I don't think that there is any silver bullet. Um, I would guess that there are probably, like, most applications probably have um certain protocol layer um like levers that they can pull to help mitigate the problem and find like more stable equilibria and for a lot of those applications it'll probably uh like like they'll probably need to be on l2 to do that um uh and and this is related to um you know uh like Paradigm has invested in Cosmos and is somewhat interested you know is obviously interested in that ecosystem for like largely similar reasons. It's it's just the idea of like um, uh, MEV with generality is a very hard problem, and I think a lot of the experimentation um, that we're going to see happen is is uh, you know sort of like more conforming um, uh, to the specifics of, of each application.
0: Guys, one burning question in my mind that I have to ask because, you know, as David and I say, a lot of this, this podcast is also for us, like we're on the journey, we're trying to understand, learn this stuff as well. So one thing I'm unclear about is if this is a, an Ethereum specific problem or say a general smart contract platform problem, or to what extent it exists in a network like Bitcoin, say on Bitcoin's layer two, which is like crypto banks let's call it, inside of a Coinbase or a Binance exchange, like think of these as side chains, versus to what extent it, it uh, exists in traditional finance. It just seems to be the case that maybe in kind of crypto banks or in traditional finance, you just can't see the MEV, but maybe it still exists. Is that the case or is this really specific, a specific problem to uh, Ethereum smart contract and its design? I think it's a philosophical, I think it's a philosophical question,
3: honestly. Um, I mean, yeah, like we, we could like kind philosophy.
0: Of kick... Why is it philosophical, Charlie?
3: Um, well, because, you know, my bank, uh, like, or, or broker or whatever elects not to front run me because the SEC is going to come after them, which, you know, you could call a, you know, crypto economic incentive. I don't know where the cryptography comes in, in that part, but whatever, you know, we could call it that philosophically. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, MeV like uh, like most things, uh, yeah, it has, it has like fractal you know sort of analogous uh, uh, or fractal analogies in in other contexts. But I think that when we talk about MeV in in crypto uh, and, and like with respect to permissionless blockchains in particular, um, like it is actually a pretty narrowly scoped uh, concern in the sense that like, Um, it's, it's like not a thought experiment, it is real, uh, it's like fair, it's like fairly easy to define, you know, what is and is not, uh, I mean, and I think that there is like a pretty clear difference to a conversation about, for example, the incentives of like, uh, you know, an optimistic roll-up sequencer on Ethereum, uh, versus like why Wells Fargo may or may not decide to front run me, you know, in, in their position. so yeah I guess I would just say it it seems to me more of like a practical concern within the context of permissionless systems in the same in in the same way that like um you know custodial systems permissionless systems just have different trade-offs to custodial traditional systems and like MeV practically is one of them Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's kind of, uh, you know, segues
2: into like a new perspective I've taken recently on MEV after like a long time thinking about it. Um, And that's basically that MEV kind of measures what happens in like sort of the raw economic security case only, where the only thing that matters are economic incentives. Um, And so, yes, MEV exists in traditional finance, but it's not as meaningful because the incentive structure that's built there is not only these raw economic incentives. It includes all sorts of social and technical and political and like uh, legal and paperwork based and human based infrastructure processes that are outside the scope and that can't be modeled as easily, um, uh, like Charlie said. Uh, which make this, so yes, you can measure what happens in like this technical system we built on Wall Street, if all laws break down and everyone's acting maximally maliciously. It's just that that's less meaningful than in the cryptocurrency case, where where the goal is to build a system where we're like encouraging people to pursue their rationality. And that's almost like enshrined as like, you know, acceptable no matter what. Phil, you're, uh,
3: you're, you're getting dangerously close to rationality is self-defeating right now, my friend. Yeah, I mean it relates to rationality
2: is self-defeating in many ways, but I think it cuts through rationality is self-defeating. So, because rationality is like self-defeating, this like simpler metric is like the only means of analysis that like matters and kind of uh you know, like there's obviously a difference between Bitcoin and Algorand or other honest BFT protocols inside an economic model in that like Bitcoin is more robust in a wider range of rational actor, rational incentive models where there are fewer honesty and more economic assumptions. That being said, rationality is self-defeating. You can't perfectly model the world. And in many models, Bitcoin breaks down. For example, if you have two equally sized Bitcoin like blockchains, the analysis says nothing about that. And that's like a perfectly valid future. Um, So yes, it is self-defeating, but that being said, even though it is self-defeating, you know somehow the systems we're building, we're trying to build things that are robust in more self-defeating worlds than not. Uh, and towards that end, kind of uh, looking at it through the lens of MEV is a useful tool to see like in which universes does it clearly break down versus not. Um, and because we're building these kind of economically secured systems, that's a very immediately meaningful and and like we just said, practical
0: question. Oh my God, this panel did not disappoint no. on, <laughs> on everything we've covered in particular that last question. Thank you guys, super insightful. David, I think you've got the last one.
1: Yeah, it's it's very, I hope it's obvious to listeners as to why this is such a critical conversation. And I, I, I thank you guys for coming on and giving us your time and also simply just being public servants or uh, yeah, public servants for public goods. Somebody has to fight this fight. And and so I, I'm just honored that, that you guys are fighting this fight on behalf of, in my opinion, the whole entire globe. And so I, I kind of want to finish off with this question. When you hear the term MEV, Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic and why? And Phil, let's start with you.
2: Ooh, uh, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know, I feel cautiously optimistic uh, the same way I imagine I would if I was like observing like the early days of the internet. Uh, You know, I think we have an opportunity I think it's easily squandered, so it's very cautious, and I feel still a lot of existential anxiety about the way things will go in this space. Uh, and if everyone who's looking back on this podcast in ten years is like, "This guy screwed up, and he's the new Blithe Masters designing like terrible <laughs> credit fact
3: instruments," like, "F that guy," I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> <Did my best. laughs>
1: uh, Georgia, like, honestly, I hope people. You. Oh,
3: go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, hopefully, like they come back and listen to this podcast, and they're like, i ah, They weren't such bad guys. They gave it their best go.
4: (laughs) Georgios, are
1: you you optimistic or
4: pessimistic? I feel very optimistic. I think that the better world of tomorrow, firstly, this is like very philosophical. The better world of tomorrow is built on optimism and we need people to kind of risk working on hard problems like this because without these kinds of risk takers, um, we wouldn't be where we are as a species. And secondly, I think that MEV right now, like what I care about, most fundamentally as an engineer, researcher, investor, is working with the smartest people in the industry. And I know that the hardest people, the hardest problems in the industry attract the smartest people in the industry.
1: Charlie, MEV, optimistic or pessimistic? Optimistic, Um,
3: for this reason. Um, The... Rationality is self-defeating argument, or like the you know Gödel's incompleteness theorem for blockchains uh, argument. To me, is incredibly uh, intellectually attractive, and um, something that I I've spent like an inordinate amount of time thinking about. Um, and you know this 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 is the argument again that that for any set of quote unquote uh, rational crypto economic assumptions, uh, you know we can come up with that there is a way to violate and defeat them. Yet in practice, uh, if you go to coinmarketcap.com, how many blockchains currently uh, like exist and work? Uh, and how many have been broken? Um, there's a ton that work in practice. Very few have been broken. I guess like Ether Classic had like a reorg attack, but like, I don't know, it'd be kind of hard for me to think of another. Um, and so I think that like, uh, I think of MEV somewhat similarly, which is, um, there is like, I think a really deep uh philosophical concern that's worth taking seriously. Um, and like obviously, you know, is being more realized in practice today. like this is something we actually have to confront. Um, and we sort of have like the counterfactual that if we don't do something, um, the default state might not be um, successful and optimistic. But that being said, um, broadly, crypto has done pretty fantastically at, Uh, Succeeding even when uh, we have an incompleteness theorem as to why. Um, So, I don't know, in the absence of, in the absence of certainty, I'm willing to, to take the optimistic perspective. Incompleteness
2: theories themselves are rational claims that are self-defeating is what I would say. And uh yes, yes you can you can technically design a mechanism that breaks any rationality assumption, but like it, I think it's much more useful to look at the whole and the big picture and like approximately what you're getting and like the leverage you're buying in various universes. And that's really more where yes. I think MEV can
3: I, provide leverage. I'm also optimistic because Phil is more articulate than I am. So I just I just defer to him.
0: Guys, we're going to have the same panel back and it's just going to be blockchain crypto philosophy because I think heads would explode as mine did toward the end of this. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, bankless listener. I want to thank the panel for making this happen. Thanks a lot, guys.
2: Thanks so and much. Am,
0: guys, what did you learn from today? Here's one thing I learned. MEV is a pernicious problem. It's probably one of the biggest uh last unsolved problems in the space and the stakes are extremely high this is like the difference between do we create a better financial system for the world or do we fall flat on our face and just create a different financial system with a different set of actors super important here this is not the last time we will be talking about mev on bankless i guarantee you but there's reason to be optimistic. And I'm leaving this conversation more optimistic having spoken to these panelists today. Of course, guys, got to close with risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone. But thanks for joining us on The Bankless Journey.